Good morning, everyone. All those lovely early birds out there. Um, hello, I'm Leslie Ferris, and we're going to start the first panel, um, the name of which I've already forgotten. Uh, it's members of the creative team discuss devised work in verbatim theater. There you go. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I'm first on the docket, and we're going to really um, be trying to keep to time. People are going to poke me if I start to go over, because all of us realize that if we were given free reign, we would just keep talking you know, for a good hour each, if, if not more. So we have to contain it, and also to have time for you to ask questions. So what I thought I would start with is how it kind of began, and um, some of my um, evidence that I have here. And um, I know people have asked me how it all started. And this is the book that started it. It was published in 1943. It has my mother's maiden name in it, Mary Jones. And it's called Paris Underground by Edda Scheiber. And um, it was, uh, she was a great reader. And um, it was on her bookshelf for years. I never paid any attention to it at all. And then um, until about, I don't know exactly when, I can't remember, but it was like seven or eight years ago when I was visiting her and I, I wanted something to read and I noticed it. The tagline here is, an American woman and a friend operated an underground through which many British soldiers escaped from France. I thought that sounded interesting. Well, I couldn't put it down. There's her picture on the back. So it's a memoir. And... Um, and I, at the time, I thought, oh, I'd love to turn this piece into a theatrical piece. I was so taken by the story. And I think one of the things that um, attracted me was the fact that these two amateur women, one an American and one a British woman, who lived together in Paris um, uh, prior to World War II and then the occupation, um, kind of on their own uh, discovered an RAF soldier that was caught behind enemy lines and, and figured out a way to get him out. And they did that one time and, um, and then thought, well, that was it. And then they sat around thinking, like, if there's one, there might be more. And um, so they continued to help people get out. And um, they got nearly 200 um, soldiers out before they were arrested. And um, the American woman, Edda Scheiber, um, actually was put in a, a work camp and um, was trade, I mean, this I just think is so bizarre. And I have to say, I, I kind of went, I tried to find any critical, you know, critical takes on this and at the time, and I, I couldn't. But she was um, in prison and um, in France, and she was traded for a German spy by the Americans. And I thought, that can't be true. So I looked it up on the New York Times in the early 40s. And sure enough, it was, on, it was the headlines. It was a headline article. So it was, <laughs> I guess it did really happen. Um, and when she was traded then, she went immediately wrote this with, um, with a ghostwriter. And it was published in 1943 and went through numerous. Um, and a horrible Hollywood film version was made of it called Paris Underground as well. And, um, kind of a B-movie, B um, which turned the, the women's relationship, which is, of course, not articulated in any way other than friendship, but turned it into a, a, a steaming love story between heterosexual love story. So as often happens in these, these tales, this seems to be something that happens. So I had been like thinking about this for a number of years and kept thinking, like, oh, I'm, 
you know, I need the proper time to think through it and um, how would it be possible to use this story. And along the way um, of thinking about it, I realized if one is to do something like that, we need time, real serious time, like several years to develop it. And around, um, I think around this, uh, some, a few years later, um, a man named Nicholas Rankin, who's a family friend of mine um, in England, uh, published his, second, his third book called Churchill's Wizards, The British Genius for Deception and Disguise in World War I and World War II. And he'd been researching that for years, and he had obviously had a whole section on camouflage in it. And he was the one that mentioned to me, the, the special operations executive, I believe. And um, he was doing um, a book tour for the book when it was published in the US. I believe that was in 2009. I would think it was fall of 2009. And um, does that sound right? <laughs> and uh, we were able to get him to detour to Columbus, Ohio. And actually, he gave a talk on the book, right, on his book right here in the Mershon Center. Um, and, um, and then by that time, we had a kind of team together of people who met him and talked to him. And he kind of became a consultant for us on the, on the project. Um, OK, so I'll leave those beginnings, which are kind of convoluted and could, one could talk about them for some time. But I, um, when we realized that we would actually maybe be able to do a project based on, in the general area of this, um, obviously, we talked to the department chair, and we were trying to think, like, we, obviously, we need the time. Um, how would we do it? Um, and once it was determined that it would be in our season in May, for May 2011, um, and we knew that pretty much, a, like, a good two years almost. Well, I mean, maybe it wasn't totally finalized, but it was kind of, it looked like a strong possibility. Um, then we did have this team of people, the faculty team and the ACAD team, and you're going to hear more about that later. And we started to have, um, and the theater team, we started to have regular um, meetings. And you'll, like I said, you'll hear more about that later. Um, I just wanted to hold up some of, um, I went through my, um, my, I have all these notebooks at various stages when I was working on it. And um, I'm sure many of you know, you, you have that feeling, whenever you're doing research or working on a project, you are attuned to that particular subject. Like, all of a sudden, you have these special antennae that are in your head, these invisible little things, and anything re remotely related to what's in the antennae, like women agents, camouflage, da da da. It's like you just like zoom, zoom, you know, like you can, you, you kind of go that way. So, um, here's a New York Times article from Saturday, April 25th, 2009. This image, which I absolutely loved, it, um, it didn't ever end up in the production, but we talked about it. It's, um, it's a piece of wallpaper from France. And um, on it, because paper, there was such paper shortage, um, one of the French poets, uh, Jacques Audeberti, wrote on it for, his, for one of his poems. And it would, this was from a, um, uh, an exhibition in New York at the public library called Between Collaboration and Resistance. And so, um, so I was following all these events um, that I discovered uh, during the, the research period. Um, another archival thing is this is from September 11, 2009. I'd already thought that um, the notion of prison cells 
um, boxes or shapes of boxes that contain the women, um, and obviously coffins were, was a key image that I thought of early on. And here was the French mime artist Pierre Rigal in this um, box. It starts out being a big box, and in the course of the performance, it shrinks. And um, so I just would, I was keep, you know, I was collecting these things and kind of, they were making me think about it. Another um, thing that really affected me, this was May 10th, 2010. I was in New York. In fact, that's the, when I've, um, one of the times I, I think the first time I met Rita in May a year ago. Um, the Park Avenue Armory. I was, I was making a visit to that for another reason called the Art Royal Shakespeare Company. Anyway, I was making a visit there and an exhibit was just opening, so I got to see it. It was still in process called No Man's Land, um, which was this incredible, um, was by a French artist called Christiane Boltonsky, and it was this um, amazing pile of clothes. <laughs> if anybody wants to see this later, I'll, I can show it to you. And um, with lots of clothes in little stacks. And um, there was a kind of cherry picker that would go around and pick them up and dump them in the middle. So the, the pile kept getting bigger and bigger. And I was just affected by it. It spoke to me of um, the piles of clothes that we've all seen and the shoes, et cetera, from the camps. And um, it was a kind of metaphor uh, for me personally of some of the work that I'd been reading about. And at one, and for the longest time, <laughs> As the designers and the team know, I thought this was going to be a crucial image that would be in the production. But as many as when you devise a piece, you really have to learn to let go of certain things. And at a certain point, I had to let go of that. But just so you know, this was like, yes, we will have this, and it didn't happen. But it became, nevertheless, that's part of the the whole process. Um, okay, so. Um, Obviously, when you're working on this, and with such a large subject, particularly, um, so I moved on, obviously, from the two women in the Paris, in Paris rescuing RAF soldiers to discovering the SOE women. And so the focus then switched to that. Um, but how do we tell that story? And um, of course, everyone on the team would be asking the team members, how do we tell this story? And um, at the Fairly early on, um, I came up with the idea of what I call narrative threads, that there's no possible way to tell this story with one single narrative. And so, you know, I thought, we have at least three narrative threads. Um, and at that stage, I wasn't, I was, I wasn't, we weren't even necessarily focused on Knotzweiler, the women of Knotz. We weren't necessarily there. We were still having a bigger, um, trying to decide how to even narrow it down even more. Um, but the narrative threads <clears throat> in the early stages were the notion of training, tra the camouflage training um, that took place. And of course, I, we were in affected by the fact that the um, Imperial War Museum published um, the syllabi, the SOE syllabi. Um, so that, and were available to purchase. So that was um, a boon to, in a sense. Um, another narrative thread were the actual notion of camouflage. I'm not going to talk about that. My colleagues will talk more about that. But the camouflage aspect of this, the artists involved. And then there are the actual characters, the, the, live, the stories of the individual characters. So the training, the char characters, and the, the camouflage. And I really saw those as kind of, you know, intertwined and moving and uh, around like that. And um, in terms of um, timeline, one of the other really helpful aspects 
to the process was that in the summer of 2010, um, I, along with um, my colleague Kristen Kearney, were um, uh, the resident, co-resident directors of our London Theatre Program, which we run every other year for about five weeks in London. And um, it always takes place in August and early September. And because I knew um, we were working on this, um, I included um, the Imperial War Museum as a thread of research for the whole group of students. There are about 20, I don't know, three students in it. And we have at least one student here who went on that, Chelsea, who is great. She was in that cohort of students in London. And, um, and actually, two of the actors who in the production um, that you saw were also there. So um, we had a tour um, of the Imperial War Museum. And um, one of the other things we do in the London Theatre Program is like to give our students an opportunity to actually do some theatre themselves as opposed to just witnessing 25 productions, which is what we do in five weeks, um, and talking and writing about those productions, is we rent um, one of the fringe theatres we have a relationship with called Teatro Technus in Camden Town. And um, I decided that we would do something related to the camouflage project, kind of a work in progress. So um, I'd been talking with Peter Cutts who, from London, who's a, an artist, a theater artist and filmmaker in London, who I've known for years and has been a guest artist in our department in the past, and asked him if he would be interested in um, helping me uh, run that component. Because I knew if I'm running the program, I would not have a lot of time to actually do the the directing work that needed to be done. Um, so um, Peter agreed, and I started showering him with books um, in advance so that he would um, read the material. And we kind of, um, before we left to go to London, um, <clears throat> we had um, what I call the raw, some raw material. Most of it was focused on training, specific examples of training, SOE a couple of the SOE syllabi, and then some of the oral histories that had been published in various accounts related to the training, I believe it was. Um, and um, that became our kind of uh, script, so to speak, although it was in no way was it a script. Um, and I think the, the, um, there were seven students of the 25 in the group um, who were, in, were performers in this. And they had five kind of afternoons of three, four, three to four hours to work on this material. It was really under Peter's direction. And I was there observing. And Chelsea was the dramaturg. And she continued to be the dramaturg for the whole project. And she was taking notes like mad and writing the script. And, um, and that was when we bought the parachute <laughs> right, So as well. Um, in addition to the seven performers, we had um, a team of students doing the lights and um, the design. and props and things like that. And one of those students loved trying to find a parachute in London, and he did. <laughs> that, so um, so we, that, that, the ending of that, the, the end product of that was a 20-minute um, really investigation of some of the issues in, in the project. Um, and two particular aspects remained in the final version that you saw. We can talk about that later if you'd like. Um, but it was very, very helpful, and afterwards we had a kind of panel discussion. Nick Rankin came and um, spoke about um, the project, and we had a, I mean, we had a good audience that came, and um, actually um, in that audience was Jenny Morgan, the filmmaker. That was how I met Jenny Morgan, who screened her film um, at uh, the Wexner Center 
on Wednesday afternoon on, on the women agents. So I didn't know her at all, but she came, somehow she found out about, we did have a mini publicity campaign and she found out. So, so um, I think I should turn this over. I, we're, hopefully we're gonna have good time at the end for people to ask us questions. So I'm gonna turn it over to Mary Tarantino. Thank you. Hi, good morning. Thank you all for coming. I want to just thank a few people who are here and some people who are not here. Um, thank you to Courtney and all the folks at the Mershon Center for hosting us today and tomorrow. We're really delighted to be here and talking about what we do in theater over in another building besides Drake where we spend lots and lots and lots of time. Um, I also want to thank um, some people who are not here because they're helping our department operate while we're not here, but without whom there is no way we could have done any part of this production exhibit um, experience and symposium and I'm just going to name off their names and, and um, acknowledge them but they include our office staff, our amazing office staff which are Beth and Damien um, and Eric whom all of you know who probably answered 7, 9, 20, 40 emails um, over the last couple of months um, and our production staff who built that amazing production and exhibit environment. Um, Jim and Brad and Jan and Chris and Matt um, and um, Brad, if I didn't mention him, but it's just been really amazing working with them and having them support these crazy visions because we really, this was a big push um, and we were able to achieve it. So what I'm going to talk about real quickly is sort of go through, um, paralleling to what uh, Leslie talked about, but sort of the research threads um, and sort of points of inspiration that um, sort of helped me develop my path on this project um, and really crucial interactions with individuals. Um, as we went forward with um, our project. Let's make sure my, okay. Um, and the first started with a visit to Bletchley Park in 2009. I was recently installed as the new director of the Theater Research Institute here on campus. Some of you have had a chance to visit that. Um, and I got a chance to get over to London and um, I, Leslie and I were already in progress in terms of this production and I thought, I was reading Leo Marx's Between Silk and Cyanide. I was totally geeking out on the science and the, and the and that's sort of part of this project. And I thought, we have got to get to Bletchley Park. I mean, it's easy to get to. So um, we, as my husband, he happened to drag him along with me. Um, and so we spent the day there. And I was able to meet the archivist there. And it was a really important day because he said, I can only give you a half hour, but you can touch one of the Enigma machines, which was very, very cool. Um, but he said, you know, there's, some, there's a meeting going on. And I later learned out, well, HP was there that day because they were trying to solicit some corporate funding to try to save Bletchley because it's really in this state of needing um, some TLC and so it was this sort of momentous day um, but an amazing experience in the museum and, and the hut visits and all that sort of thing um, that sort of helped I think me become sort of the anchor to the camouflage and code side of this and Leslie the anchor to the women's stories and it's certainly not that we didn't overlap but it sort of gave each of us a different way of um, sort of moving forward and then kind of connecting this all together um, in the project. Um, we also had this fortuitous meeting of Roy Barents and his wife in Cincinnati. He was doing a wonderful um, exhibit called Seagoing Easter Eggs and that's where we really learned about this cool thing called Dazzle Camouflage. And, um, and I think speaking with Roy and getting ideas about um, an amazing um, exhibit that was taking place at the Canadian War Museum that I was able to get up to in the following June 
really helped us, again, anchor, sort of focus um, part of this on um, the idea of camouflage, the women being camouflaged and um, devices and, and ways we incorporate camouflage. So that was a really important sort of event that took place um, in early 2010. Um, we had this amazing research adventure last summer, and Janet and Leslie and myself and Dave Fisher, who is mostly off camera because he's behind the camera, um, had a chance to interview um, the three um, subjects that you were able to see, those of you who um, have had a chance to see the production, but we feature them um, in our production. So we're doing a little setup here in his lovely home, um, trying not to burn anything with our portable lighting and whatnot. We were really delighted to have Nick Rankin um, administer that interview. Um, with MRD foot. Uh, as Leslie said, we spent a quite a bit of time at the Imperial War Museum, and I'm going to jump through quite a few slides here. I think you'll find images, um, as we did, that really helped influence the composition of the stage space, um, some of the elements in the play, and absolutely elements that um, show up in the exhibition. And um, so it was just an, and of course, we spent quite a bit of time in the collections. Um, um, you know, one never forgets the first time they hear Brian Stonehouse's real voice. It's just, you know, it's just quite amazing listening to that and then translating that um, audio interview and the other amazing gems that we discovered there. Um, so we made our way through with bicycles. We went to the special operations room in the Imperial War Museum and did a lot of um, photography. It really led to the idea of wireless transmitters and suitcases, and that's a part of the interactive in the, uh, in the exhibit and also, of course, carried by Noor. Um, on stage. We had thought there would be six or seven um, wireless transmitters, but we ended up with really just one, and uh, I think that was a good decision. Sabotage devices, weapons. Um, something else for me, I took a day and, and went up to Cambridge and studied the Julian Trevelyan papers, and I think that helped play into the development of the camouflage instructor scene that you saw, um, and which is really nicely illustrated with um, some of ACAD's um, amazing 3D um, projection mapping um, in that. But it gave me a chance to really make the connection that Leslie and I had talked about, about artists making camouflage. So we really centered our focus on Trevelyan and Penrose. And, and at the end of the show sort of isolated him out but wanted to do sort of a combination of those two artists as, as uh, representing that and connecting us as theater artists to um, this war effort. Um, and you probably see, um, these were some photographs I took from um, his collection there that made its way into some of the 3D um, physical and virtual model building that took place. And I'm sure that Vito and Matt will speak to this um, as we go forward during the symposium. Okay, I have to talk about this because it was this amazing day. Okay. Note the trepidation on Ferris's face. Okay. So we were feeling pretty good. We had completed the MRD foot interview, and he had said, um, you really should go to the Special Forces Club. Well, it was Friday, late Friday afternoon, and Leslie made some phone calls, and it sounded like we weren't going to get there, but Leslie does not just say no. I mean, she just, <laughs> she just doesn't say no. So we get there, and all of us, Janet and Dave, are carrying video equipment, piles and piles of video equipment. So uh, Ferris gets us entry into the Special Forces Club. So she goes in and has a small conversation in the lobby, which led to, can we have 10 minutes? And he said, no, you can have five minutes. And then she's like, we're in there, but there will be no photography. So Janet and Dave stash all their stuff in the corner. And they let us into this space. And again, this is my little image here from their, their brochure. Um, I think for me, there was this, that was a really powerful moment because 
we get to the lobby, we go up the stairs, we see the photographs of the women and the men agents on the stairs, we see Brian Stonehouse's sketches, we see all of this stuff that is not formed yet, but is, is, is you know, starting to become solidified and, and make its way into something that we know is meaningful and we need to find a way to express in the production. So this happenstance um, activity really led to something that was quite powerful and, and um, helped focus our, our energies on this project. Um, we spent a day and a half with Tanya Zabo and on her, um, at her home and around the environs of um, um, Jersey and learned a lot. And again, it was a really good exercise in helping us focus the piece on who we wanted to study, people who had already been studied, who we, we, were, we were perhaps going to shift our gaze from. Certainly Violette's story is the most accessible and um, it was important for us to speak with her and sort of get her point of view on that. The other part of that for me was our visit to the Jersey War Tunnels that day and we spent, oh geez, probably four or five hours there. Um, I think some of that for me as a lighting designer now, I'll shift my hat, helped me to sort of think about what this environment, this cinegraphic environment was going to look at or look like for the production. The Jersey War Tunnels, this is a sample of the finished tunnel and then there was this unfinished tunnel and the, the story is long and I won't get into it but it was um, built with slave labor. And so they had this amazing dramatic lighting of this cave-like sort of structure. And for me, I know that resonated in my head all the way through to making design decisions about a stark, crisp, shadowy sort of environment that I knew would uh, possess part of the lighting design for the, for the production. So this became a really important, strong lighting reference for me that um, I was able to go back to. Um, other things in the exhibit, um, all of you, again, who have seen the show, the flare path scene, um, seeing this um, photocopy of or this photo of this um, Lysander really helped us on the exhibition team think about how we wanted to incorporate 3D content into that. We knew we wanted more than just photocopy materials, but um, actual, you know, um, replicas, models, any sort of tangible 3D element that might be part of that show. Um, our visit with Noreen and her husband Jacques, um, as you know, you see Noreen is a huge part of the content um, in the in the media part of the presentation. I'm sure Janet will speak to that a little bit more, but it was a, a charming day and um, humbling, humbling insights from both um, Noreen and her husband when we visited them and interviewed them outside of Paris. Last part of that visit was our, our, our trip to the camp. And I include this here because again, in my mind, I think this really helps solidify. So this is an architectural view of the camp and it became a reference for the design scheme of the production. As you see the show, everything is very linear, everything is very contained, and I know for me, seeing this camp and this drawing of this camp and this sort of order and this sort of horror in the order um, really was a great influence in how Leslie and I then had further conversations about um, sort of constructing um, the space in, um, on Thurber stage. The prison cells, again, you saw the, some of this in the production. Um, and some of these materials here in terms of the way we wanted to honor the women and give the audience a little bit of content and context uh, to the production. Okay, so quickly jumping to the camouflage and coding sort of part of it. This was our long list. So as Leslie said, we had lots more characters, lots more ideas, lots more paths that we wanted to pursue. And a lot of it was about setting stuff aside and saying, okay, this is good research, but we really need to focus this energy and distill this down to a piece that is concise. So it started with this long list of artists and camoufleurs and saboteurs and code makers, um, of which, um, you know, several came forward. 
this was our large list of individuals here, and um, some of um, our colleagues will be speaking further about this part of the research um, as the symposium goes on. Um, Thayer and the duck, I hope Matt will talk about the duck tomorrow, um, or this afternoon um, when he speaks um, about part of his process. Um, but I, I really got in deep, <laughs> I gotta say, in terms of the camouflage um, and learning about it and counter shading and obliterative shading and, and whatnot. So I was pretty deep in there for a couple of months. Um, but it was a really important way to sort of figure out how then we transfer this sort of scientific and artistic material um, to the stage. Um, back to Trevelyan a little bit, and Penrose, so this sort of combination, and as you see, um, this image here shows up in our production. Um, I'm going to just say Jasper Maskelin's name because Beth is going to give us some, some information about him and, and his um, short-term relationship to our production. We, we tried and tried and tried, and um, maybe he'll be in the movie version or something like that. Um, <laughs> And, and getting back to theater designers and how the, the work of theater designers in creating illusion and deception through props and costumes and things like that. I know Dan will speak a little bit more about this as well as our resident scene designer. Um, but that continued to interest us and try to find ways to uh, make it into the production as well as the ghost army. Okay, so the project. So we ended up sort of in these five categories, this agent training and this camouflage training and this those who remember, so these voices speaking to us from the present in a, in a designed way that was very, very different from what we were trying to do in terms of the design of the rest of the play. Um, and then, of course, those who survived, um, the four sections and the various characters who speak about their experience there. Um, and some of the popular music. I'm going to say one or two things about that, if that's all right. There were definitely things from the London production that Leslie was very intent upon keeping. and. And I mean, the other idea of it is to have some music as a little bit of a relief, but then sort of tie into what was going on, especially with Chattanooga Choo Choo when you've got this train and then you've got this blowing up of the train um, to sort of have these two things happening um, simultaneously. Um, and then, of course, um, with contemporary songs about war and resistance. So we really felt that was a nice way to um, provide variety and run that through as a theme um, through the production. Uh, I've pretty much said everything about the performance environment and you've had a chance to see it. Um, containing everything in the environment became really key. And the other part of it, which Vita I'm sure will talk about more, is from the beginning of our collaboration, and we knew from the very start that we were, we were interested in collaborating with um, ACAT on this project, um, from a design point of view is about coordinating the media. And um, again, as lighting designer, it was making sure that the, the animated world and Janet's, I'm gonna say it, Janet's video world and Mary's physical lighting world were working together and not competing with each other and making sure that they had, um, all of us had the physical resources to be able to do what we needed to do, blended as needed and separated as needed. Um, and I'm hopeful that you'll see that I think we did a pretty good job of doing that and allowing each element to work independently and or um, um, as a unified um, whole in the production. But it was a lot of talk about projector placement and quantity of light and um, ways video was going to integrate and then become really the main event um, for some of these important scenes. Um, I've talked a little bit about the exhibition content and um, I'm sure Beth will talk about that a little bit more. Um, two other in, um, moments that really are, are key for us, and, and that is um, our follow-up meetings with Rita Kramer. 
and her generosity in sharing some materials from her collection um, that really helped us formulate an idea um, and information specific to the training of the women agents. And this is just a sample from Andre Borrell's um, training report. And I think that was crucial for us to really signify and identify these people. So meeting with Rita and uh, her, her generosity in, sh in sharing those materials um, became really vital for us. At the end of the quarter, um, the digital and physical lighting class, which I teach with my um, colleague Maria Palazzi, who's here today, um, did a combined final project with um, the devising class, um, which Janine Thompson taught in the autumn quarter, and Leslie was a part of as well. And it gave the opportunity for the actors and the lighting designers in that class um, to merge together and do some experimentation and, and start to answer some preliminary research questions about the project of lighting an actor in space and developing scene work. So it was a really good test run for what we were going to do um, and move forward. And, and it answered questions and asked other questions and problems that we wanted to um, solve. And that's my last image. So I'll turn it over to you, Vita. Can I just I just want to clarify one quick thing. Did I say something incorrectly? Uh-huh. Oh. <laughs> you no, have to do no, it I'm now. just joking. I'm just joking. No, it's just to the pro the it's just a sequence. Fall quarter there was a history class, a graduate history seminar where all the actors as well as um, some of the PhD students involved were in and that was reading the material and that's that's what ended the image you just saw. Oh, the devising class. Was in yeah, and the devising class was in winter quarter. So 10 weeks of history, 10 weeks of devising, and then we, in March we went into, we had a version of a script and we went into rehearsal. Okay, that was all. I'm at, uh, no, actually that's all right. And if you want to maybe um, speak just a little bit more about this. this really, actually maybe we can take a question. Oh, yeah, right. it, okay, so while Vita's um, hooking up her Mac, does anybody have any questions right now? it was extremely important and we knew it was it while we were there um, I think the cool thing is that we had our books we had Rita's book it was like our guide and walking through Knotsweiler I mean we we got there Janet and Leslie and I got there at 830 and we left at 6 you know that's a long day in a camp um, and, and dealing with all this content and seeing everything and, and I think by the end of that, I don't know if we decided that day, but I think that really was the turning point. It was probably a couple weeks later that you said, it really helped us focus the story after visiting that, visiting that and walking through with Rita's text to follow. I mean, it just really solidified things. Although the final winnowing down didn't happen until um, kind of the fourth, third or fourth week of the devising class winter quarter. Because in the fall, even though, I mean, all the, stu all the students in the history class read um, Rita's book. Jean that was the one of the required yeah, tasks. But this cable is not. And, but reason. in terms of their research projects, we, we, it was a wider berth, so to speak. I mean, the, every one of the things um, the, the, the students in the class did was I um, created a, I put a bunch of agents' names that we were interested in. 
there were about 12 or 13, 14 names. And there were like 12 people in the class. So, and I had them draw a name out. And um, they were to research that particular person. It didn't matter if it was not gender specific to them or whatever, because I know Alison Vasquez got Leo Marx, I remember, for example. Um, and then at the end of the quarter, they presented um, a one-minute monologue based on that character, even if it was a woman or a man, you know, that. And um, that, those monologues were presented at the same time as that other, the digital lighting um, class. Um, and I know Francesca was in the class, who's the assistant director, and she, her research was on Sonia, Sonia Aleshineski. So her monologue, she created a monologue on that. So everybody um, in that group had done you know, but, but Bob Malubier was in there, and he dropped out, you know. So I mean, it, so it was a wider berth, and it was after um, early in winter quarter that we said, okay, we're really going to focus on Knotzweiler. I mean, we, we were kind of there already, but does that make sense? But some of the people, um, tell me when you're back. Okay. I think we have to have Janine go first. There's and then we'll have you okay. a bit of a problem. All right. But just to say, some of the people, to end that, some of the people like Aaron Zook's monologue was Brian Stonehouse, and he ended up then playing Brian Stonehouse. Um, and I think the other one like that is Kevin. Kevin McClatchy did the research on Dairy Corps, and, that, and then he stayed with that. Okay. So Janine. Oh. Let me move this. You sit here, Vita. Okay, actually, I'm, I think I'm, I'm going to have to go get Courtney to She's figure this out. So, okay, I don't want to interrupt your presentation. But you can be there if you need to. You sure? Absolutely. I'm fine right here. Um, hello, I'm Janine Thompson. I'm one of the directors of the project. Um, my job and my research was how to bring these incredible ideas and all of this research from Leslie and Mary with the story and the people and camouflage, the technology and what you're going to see from Vita and what ACAD brought to it. How do we bring this to life on stage? That was my job. And that is also, should you get it? Okay. Hello again. <laughs> <laughs> Will I hurt anything if I'm standing here? I'm kind of touching your wires. Are you okay? Okay. Um, technology. <laughs> Um, so the how of it, the how, the how of it is what I focused on with this project, how to bring these women to life, how to work with the lights, how to work with the technology, how to bring about the sensibility, the tone of this story. And that's what I focus in with my own work. That's where my research comes into play is how to create original work. And it, that also goes to our curricular development with this program. 
A uh, number of years back, we gave ourselves a, a question as to why would people come to Ohio State University to study theater? When there are so many other places in the world to study theater, and there are certainly much prettier places than Columbus, Ohio. No, there isn't. <laughs> I'm from Utah. Um, so why come here? And we decided that um, instead of just offering a traditional acting program, we decided to focus our MFA in acting on creating original work. So we crafted a curriculum that has strong traditional training while at the same time starts to focus actors to learn how to create work themselves, performer generated work in a variety of ways. One way is devising, which is this project. The next way is in outreach and engagement. It's working with a community partner. And the final way is through developing solo work. Now with the devise project, the actors who have been learning how to work as an ensemble since the day they stepped into their curriculum, into their program, they learned how to start to create work under the guidance of a director. And that in and of itself has a lot of problems uh, because they, the uh, actors like to have their own ideas and actors <laughs> Even in the script writing, um, we're very um, taking great ownership of, please don't write this script telling me what to do on stage. Let me try to figure out what to do on stage. Um, and yet at the same time, actors are very tender and very vulnerable. And to ask them to go up on stage and do this is terrifying. Like public speaking, it's terrifying. And to do that with their own ideas is especially terrifying when they're used to being handed a script and being told by a director what to do. So to negotiate all of that, all of these ideas and the actors and try to bring it into a, a piece that lives and breathes on stage. The second project, the Outreach and Engagement Project, the actors only have a supervisor, a faculty member who oversees their work. So that's a very different animal, which I think they're going to be very hungry for at this point. And then they move into a solo work where they are the directors, the choreographers, and the performers. And hopefully they're really thinking with the designer's hat on as well. So the Devise Project, how to stage this. I, we started with, um, in, in the training of the actors, we, within the classes that I teach with uh, Laban for Actors, MIME, and viewpoint training specifically, the actors already learned specific ways to create work. And in my classes, they have studies where they need to, with the material that they've been learning, create a little study. So they've already started to create. Then they come in the beginning of their second year to my composition class. 
And similar to music composition or uh, composition in a dance curriculum, they learn specific ways that actors can create work. And they have 10 studies where they need to direct create two of them, and then the, act, the other actors need to perform in them. So they're already starting to learn the roles of an ensemble of being a performer of someone else's ideas and being the generator of the ideas. And this is crucial in order for them to step into the roles necessary in a devised project. They need to learn how, to, they need to know how to work as an ensemble. What does that really mean? That is very difficult. Um, it, you need to learn how to negotiate. You need to learn how to collaborate. And as what has been said numerous times, you need to learn how to let go. Um, in the devised process, we started with generating, sitting around in a room, and we'll just imagine this group of people for now. So we're sitting in a room and we're, we have all of this research, we have all of these ideas, now let's talk about what ideas interest us. And we would talk about it. And can you imagine what ideas might interest us out of this group of people? There's a wide variety. Then we would come to a consensus on what ideas should we focus on right now to stage. And we have 15 minutes to do it. Go. How do you do that? That's what we did. And once we got up on our feet, and we did whatever we did. We then sat back down and said, and how did that work? <laughs> what worked well? What didn't work? What do we want to keep? What problems ar arised? Often it wasn't so much problems with the ideas. It was problems in communicating. That is one of the most challenging aspects of this type of work. And we just went forward. We, con we continued to uh, improvise with ideas. Then once the script started to get more developed with our incredible script, team of script writers, which included Chelsea and Francesca and Elizabeth Herlick and Phil, Phil. Phil Garrett and Leslie, um, and the actors. They also functioned as playwrights. Once that started to get more solidified, we would then assign pieces, sections of the script to different people. So you would take care of this section, and you would take care of this section, and you would take care of this section, and then we would get together, see it, and again, see what worked, see what didn't work, and start to edit and try to talk about it. It was through this process that we developed the piece. Then, once we got to the stage, it was how do we now craft it into a piece that works effectively on the stage? 
And in this capacity, I feel like I worked much more as a choreographer than a director. It was really dealing with the minutia of body position, with the animation or the lights or the stage. So, you know, instead of talking about, which we did talk about the development of their character, a lot of my talking was about you need to stand two inches to your left and turn your left shoulder on into a triple design. Now hold it and yet bring all the life that you have to give to that position. So it was dealing with those kind of details. But it was through that refinement. It was similar to uh, the way that I can imagine Robert Wilson works. But it's through that attention to detail, whether it is how someone is standing, speaking, tempo, character development, working with animation or the lighting or the sound. That is the absolute joy of what this work has to bring. It is extremely challenging, but it is also extremely rewarding. I feel that where we have ended up now is in some ways just a beginning. And that's another great thing about devised work is that I've never touched one where I could say I'm done now. And with that, I think I'm done here. <laughs> everyone and uh, sorry for the earlier technical snag there is a button that I wasn't aware of that says mute and being the visual person that I am or preparing to speak about the visual layer of this project I wasn't was blocking out the audio elements of it which wasn't very wise of me so um, I'm um, there are two uh, sort of media layers in this piece one being video that Janet will talk about in the subsequent se uh, section and um, one of animation and uh, whereas the sort of the role um, of video was um, comes across a little more a little more clearly um, I was curious to see what in the process of devising and working in collaboration what has uh, come about and uh, what sort of a pattern was formed by uh, the animated um, layer if you will so um, on one uh, the you know, the goal of um, each element of uh, this piece is to support the narrative in whichever way this uh, medium can. So uh, animation was um, a, ba a thematic backdrop, um, an environment. It uh, participated in physical action that happens on screen, such as in parachute scene. It also um, can support, sort of share and magnify the rhythm um, of what is happening on stage as well um, in um, uh, working together with lighting, it also is there to establish um, mood. There are um, several interesting aspects. All of these are, um, um, you know, just very interesting research issues uh, for us uh, as far as integration of um, animation for the into the live performance. Um, and for example, it's an issue of timing. You know, how do we? Um, uh, let's say we compare the parachute landing scene, the parachute. Yeah, the parachute landing scene and the Nora's last exam scene. Uh, one of uh, them has very uh, specific queuing and uh, short duration, and it's very quick. Versus another one, which uh, the goal of which is to establish this environment that has to kind of develop slowly and live and breathe and uh, just kind of be there. It has some cues, but they're very loose. Um, um, the 
sort of the tempo, it is very uh, kind of slow. So um, there are issues of framing, for instance, which deal with spatial composition, with uh, visibility of, of both projections and actors, and um, casted shadows and things that, um, you know, Janine was just talking about. Uh, one of the most interesting um, sort of research aspects of this is a combination of text and visuals. Um, it's a most um, delicate balance because if um, one is uh, sort of more illustrative of the other, that the two tend to get along swimmingly. If um, one uh, starts going in a slightly different direction, uh, we uh, sort of can get, one can get um, lost, drowned by another, and uh, another element can dominate, but you also have a chance to kind of touch um, uh, sort of the realism, the authenticity of the experience in the sense that, you know, in a uh, real world, uh, multiple stimuli do not come at us in synchronicity. And when that does happen, that's what really creates that aha moment of like, oh, things magically came together. And it's a very powerful thing to try to orchestrate. And, um, you know, it's especially in the context of device work, it's uh, very exciting if such moments occasionally come up. Um, it was uh, very cool to, um, it has been, I, I'm so grateful to Mary for the care and for the expertise that she took uh, working with each uh, cubic foot of that space, I would say, in trying to uh, orchestrate the light and uh, the actors and the projections and how all of that uh, existed together. Um, it has also been a, a quite a comfortable relationship with video. I think that you know once you have uh, you know two media elements, they too need to understand where one begins and another starts, and when they play sort of similar roles, the question uh, can arise: uh, what is sort of the difference between <clears throat> the artificial and the real, and what is the purpose of um, sort of doing it this way? But in this case, we had a very comfortable sort of separation between what video was doing and what animation was doing in this uh, in this piece. And then, uh, where we spent, <coughs> excuse me, probably most of our uh, research time, and what uh, was particularly exciting for us is um, how can the visuals transform the entire physical space of the performance? So on one hand, we have these um, four vertical. Um, three vertical and one horizontal projection planes being the downstage uh, scrim, the upstage wall, uh, the two side boxes and the floor layer. But we also were curious about kind of populating the space um, itself with the visuals that kind of um, <clears throat> appear and disappear. And um, you know, the, the use of boxes in uh, as elements of uh, set in this piece we're already suggesting the possibility for uh, objects to play in multiple roles as actors. So uh, how can we work with this further? So <clears throat> as um, Roy Behrens, whose presentation I'm, tomorrow I'm very much looking forward to, and his writing has been incredibly inspiring for us, the connection between ideas and the principles explored in military camouflage and, and present in natural camouflage, and also what was explored in um, modern art, contemporary to that uh, time, where there were a lot of parallels. So, <clears throat> excuse me, we looked at um, uh, some of the examples of uh, surreal imagery, for instance, um, the work of Salvador Dali, obviously, as well as works of the two artists that we considered quite closely, Penrose and Trevelyan, who both were surrealists and were engaged in uh, military camouflage very directly and um, realized that relationship by, you know, through their work. 
So um, we, we kind of tried to see uh, what if we could um, sort of come up with objects that could transform, could serve multiple uh, purposes in multiple scenes. So this one is an early uh, sketch there of an object which we called a couch, <laughs> which didn't make it for obvious reasons. But <laughs> But here we have, uh, you know, a situation where, you know, the work has not been devised yet. So we know kind of, you know, it's, it's about these women who are out there. They may be in the field one day. They may be in their apartment doing something another day. Is it likely that there will be a field and a cow? Yes, maybe. Is it possible that there will be a couch there somewhere, a sofa? Also very possible. So could it, you know, could it be one prop that would serve multiple purposes, Leslie? Can I just say that the, uh -huh. the cow idea is based on there's that photograph in the cow tent, yeah, 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 that's true. Uh, you, you know, you know maybe it's in Juliet's that the book you do with the photographs? I, well, it's in several things, where several, you know, a documentation of a photographing period. And so that's right. where... <laughs> that's where they, that came from. <laughs> but we were also trying to uh, develop amorphous shapes that could be projected mm -hmm. on, and Matt's going to talk about the 3D projection. Because uh, these guys had, eight, had get a little bored with flat surfaces. <laughs> <laughs> so we decided to wait a little bit and wait for the piece to sort of shape up a little bit more and uh, you know see where we can fit in with uh, sort of very specific things. And I think that for me the moment where the synergy of all this work comes together is in the thingamabob scene because it kind of meets exactly all the requirements and all the challenges that we have uh, you know put up uh, sort of ahead of us. It's uh, fitting conceptual. It is um, a piece that appears in place. It's assembled by actors. The challenge was, of course, to make it easy enough to do so both uh, in terms of figuring out where things should go and it has to be quickly assembled and quickly uh, striking. It's, uh, the special challenge that we have set for ourselves is for this to be um, kind of organic, smooth shaped as opposed to um, sort of more architectural, static, and straight-edged um, surfaces that, are, that have lately been used um, for uh, various outdoor shows um, with a technique that's called 3D projection mapping. And this is what you see in the lower bottom visual there. Uh, so the process of, of this, and uh, this afternoon Jeremy Baker will talk more about the process of making the thingamabob. Um, in greater detail, but just to kind of uh, step through the general process for us of what it takes to make uh, such thing to happen is, you know, we would make, um, you know, sort of skipping the concept development and uh, the sketches of this, we make the high uh, detail virtual model of the thing and then we reduce the amount of detail in order to make a, um, to actually make uh, these props and Matt, this uh, tomorrow we'll talk again in greater detail about all of this. And then uh, notice that the upper right image here, you know, we're looking at the high resolution model, but we're kind of looking at it from a funny perspective, slightly above, and it's, um, you know, it's shifted to the side, and that reflects the, the point of view of the projector exactly. We set projectors in space, and we deal obviously with how can we turn the thing so that it covers most uh, uh, territory and how it can, it can possibly hit multiple props during uh, different scenes. So this is exactly a still that is being projected on uh, in that area to um, then, you know, when the prop is in place, it would perfectly kind of drape over it, if you will. So uh, here on the upper, the upper left uh, image is the one of uh, the factory projected just on the floor. Um, 
and in order to do that, Ben Schroeder, one of our um, very talented graduate associates, has um, created a software that would allow you to actually take a physical object and a projector and then figure out um, exactly where you need to put your virtual camera to uh, match that perspective. And um, if your prop is then placed correctly in that space, then the registration is pretty accurate for this projection. Another um, layer of challenge is uh, depending on the perspective, on the viewer's angle, the indentations of the surface can look um, skewed and very different. So you kind of have to make a choice and decide, okay, this is going to look right for somebody sitting approximately in the middle of uh, this already pretty contained uh, seating area. Uh, but still you have to, uh, you know, essentially take a snapshot of the front view of the thing and then use that as a wallpaper to generate the angle view of the object. So in addition to these objects, um, there's pretty early on uh, there appeared this idea of having uh, this wall that uh, served multiple purposes. On one hand, it would be this uh, kind of uh, architectural sculptural element inspired by works of uh, Louise Nevels. On the, uh, on the upper uh, left image, you've seen one of the original sketches by Dan Gray. And um, uh, this would also contain some of the projection prop elements that we, you know, we could project upon. Uh, but it, would, it could also serve as a, a place to store other props for actors to sort of uh, go behind and change clothes and so on. It's kind of both cultural and functional piece. And uh, sort of the upper uh, right slide shows the uh, digital model that we created based on it. You can kind of see the uh, places to hide some of the thingamabob parts here and the bicycle wheel up um, on the right there. So. Um, <laughs> Un you know, unfortunately, the cost of making this and making it precisely to uh, match the digital models has been very prohibitive. So um, another idea that uh, came up was actually very exciting and very fitting conceptually is to actually hide these props behind a piece of fabric and push them in in the right moments, uh, which is uh, what you're seeing in the bottom is our final layout of these things called, that we called outies. <laughs> and we had quite a lot of fun with those. This is what they look like from the, from the side. Uh, Chris Zinkin has built quite a, a clever setup for pushing them in and out. And uh, this is about how much out uh, they came. So when you're really up close and you are you know, in that space, you certainly um, you know, see them better and they're um, you know, very in interesting to work with. But that is you know, another area with device work where we could have used a lot more time to <laughs> figure these things out. So this is the view of uh, kind of all of the outies pushed out um, or sort of pushed into the space. And one has the projection of the train wheels. Uh, in this case, the outies are used to help support uh, kind of the volume of the landscape over here. And in this scene, Nor's last exam, uh, there are a couple of um, outies up uh, on the left and here on the right and the bottom that also help to kind of uh, create the volume um, of the space. And specifically um, regarding Noor's last exam this afternoon, um, Nikki Lemon, who has spent a lot of time developing this, will also talk specifically about this scene. Um, so <clears throat> in summary, I would say that um, as far as, you know, what does animation do for, the, for this piece? Um, I think that anim anim animated things are always, uh, you know, about 
kind of the fantasy they imagined, the playful. And, um, you know, when you have um, young people engaged in an act of heroism, I think it's uh, kind of inevitable that uh, such lay exists. They all had dreams, they had their hopes, they had their maybe moments of recklessness, but that's what it's kind of all about. And I, and I hope that animation helped to bring out that layer of surprise and spontaneity um, to this work, which is otherwise very, um, um, very, very somber and very serious and very meaningful. Um, but I think one of the earlier visions for Leslie was also to have um, a layer that helps to kind of um, balance it out a little bit. Uh, so there are, unlike any production that I've ever been in, there are so many people whose contribution was so meaningful and so essential to making this happen. So I uh, would like to thank, of, uh, to thank all the colleagues in the Department of Theater and all our talented um, graduate associates, animators, and sound designers who worked on this piece and uh, the talented ensemble and um, my uh, colleagues at ACAD. And that's what I have to say.
Okay, yes, right. Edith, as I was listening to this, which is fascinating, I remember that Leonardo Vinci says in his notebooks that, you know, he's always painted like this, you know, with the the, the, the picture plane. Mm -hmm. and, and one day he did it like this, and he was drawing. I, I did it when I was in grade school because I got tired. <laughs> drawing face. And I look at it, and the face is all stretched out. And in his notebooks, he has the baby, baby face stretched out, and an eye, human eye stretched out. And he said, I've created something. And uh, he called it accidental perspective because it had come out of linear perspective. He said, I'm not going to use it, though, because with regular perspective, everybody can see it. But with anamorphic uh, perspective, there's only one point of view from which it works. So he rejected it. Uh, and I think that, isn't it true that in theater, what happened to those people said, holography. Because we can walk around it and we can, everybody can see it. It's always looked real. What happened to holography? And do you think that you're going to solve the restricted viewpoint problem? Well, uh, speaking of holography, one of the elements that we also started with was possibly incorporating stereo projections. <laughs> and the, the curious thing that I ran into, um, well, there were, there were just too many elements to deal with, but one of them is also, you know, I think people associate stereo with, it, it's just too geeky and too sort of animation. The theater, the respectable theater goers would, you know, not go for, for such thing. You know, how do you, you know, you look silly in the 3D glasses and, you know, so, uh, but, but kind of that attempt to make it, you know, three-dimensional was there. I think that as far as the uh, designing or uh, kind of improving our uh, ability to make this projection map uh, objects, there were one of the future research directions for us is to actually be uh, try to see just how flexi flexible we can be and how can we actually automate uh, the uh, kind of going through the iterations of what are the different perspectives that uh, can be accommodated, if you will. and. Um, you know, to be able to do this fast in the space, because you know, in actuality, we really had that space available for maybe a month to work with, um, and uh, you know, you needed to make these decisions fast, and then the sheer logistic of you know, making an image and trying it, make you know, making it and trying it, um, suggested that we could do, we could try to develop technology further to, you know, do it more, um, do it quicker, basically. Uh, so that's one factor, and then. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe Matt and uh, Matt and Ben in their discussions had uh, any thoughts on that too. I'm putting Matt on the spot well, here, back yeah, there. Well, I, I think, and we will talk about it a little bit tomorrow. Um, we, we did learn a great deal about what sorts of projections um, could work very flexibly from different angles, and what what sort of techniques would only work from one laser point looking like right here sort of thing, and what that yeah, it seems like the sort of the depth, the indentations. You know, anytime where you have indentations, the deeper they are, the the narrower the angle becomes from which they will appear correctly. Uh, things, you know, if you, if you just kind of wrap the surface uh, with, say, a checker pattern, it looks uh, pretty accurate from almost you know 180 degrees. You know, there's some skewing that starts happening depending on your it's also about projector position too. It kind of needs to be also kind of averaged to all the possible angles rather than being just on one extreme. So um, a lot of interesting tech moments for sure. Yes, I had a question about um, the technology component. Um, it's apparent that the on 
ensemble was working with different narrative points of view, like whose story to tell um, in terms of different characters, and then temporally whose story to tell, memory versus witness versus, you know, all those layers. To what extent were the technical elements of these discussions point of view engaging in those questions as well, or was it strictly a technical? That's what we can see from where. Right, that's a, that's a very um, good insight. Um, I think that yet another, um, unfortunately, I, I was not very much involved in the digital and physical lighting class when you guys had those discussions, so actually maybe Mary can uh, speak more as to you know, whether actors were informed by, uh, you know, by this process. But uh, this is what's, what is the exciting possibility of this project to actually you know, see, you know, because for some, some people embrace technology, some people, um, you know, not so much. And you know, it is our job to try to see how we can make it meaningful, not just a gimmick. And um, it, to have actors involved in the process was very extremely valuable. I mean, they were very involved in the process of designing the thingamabob, for instance. Both sort of women's perspectives. There are some objects there that are sort of domestic uh, labor, if you will, um, the meat grinder and the sewing machine, and they become part of this munitions factory and. Uh, you know the tips on like where to put the, the things, what scale, um, you know how many pieces can be there, just in terms of choreography of actors coming together and you know striking it or putting it together. So um, in, uh, there was a very direct opportunity to do that, but on a more conceptual level, of, uh, such as how technology mimics the fact that there are multiple facets and multiple perspectives here, um, it's a very good point. Maria and I sort of set an agenda for the for the groups, the lighting and acting teams at the end of the quarter or for their final project, and and actually Leslie, you were a big part of that as well. And we said, you, this team, you need to deal with interrogation, and this team, you need to deal with camouflage. And they came into the mix. The lighting students had started to do some previs. So there had been a little bit of preparation work and we had given them a studio space and they had selected and composed their physical environments. Um, so they, there was a little bit of a lead in terms of the design and the sort of um, compositional consideration. But then it really became about throwing those actors and those designers together to say, you craft this scenario. And it wasn't, you know, it was just those were the two topics and they both then, both teams really went in very different directions in mm -hmm. the time they had yeah, and they had a very compressed amount of, they probably, and it was over Thanksgiving and all those sorts of things, so they probably had, um, you know, they probably had four rehearsals maximum, maybe an hour each, to really get together, have this, you know, amazing session, and then the lighting people would go back, and the animators would go back, and the actors would go back, but the actors really came up with the scene, and then there was this negotiation between those teams. And it is remarkable, I was thinking about that last night, it's really remarkable the stuff that came out of that, that influenced the flames. So there was animation that we saw when um, Francis burns the letter. I mean, that came out of a very different and really interesting approach that the animators came to touching a, a, a cigarette or um, to a wall that all of a sudden became inflamed. The idea of that isolation of interrogation at the top of the show where all the women are there, that really came out of that workshop as well. And the, the 3D mapping, the train explosives, and the 3D mapping on um, a large box surface that gave, again, the actors and the designers and the animators a chance to, again, negotiate that physical space with each other. So, you know, as much as, I'm sure they think about it, but they were a key part, not only of just the, 
the performative process, but the, the beginning research investigation leading to the devising, leading to the performance. And I think that was the best way to do it. It was really, really, it was really, really important to have that input that early. We are, I think we need to stop now. We're five minutes over. And in order to give you all your 15 minute uh, coffee break, um, let us return at 10 to, 10 to 11. And the next group is the um, film artists, the documentary film artists and the film folks who will be talking. And I think you need to come up and load your stuff as well. So see you all back in 15 minutes for the next installation.